Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined today by my Hall of Fame co-host and star of this show, Jim Cott. And this is Cott's Corner. We're at episode 199 on the network here, so approaching that milestone of 200. And today we got a great one for you. And I was joking with Jim before the show, and I'll let him expound upon it. But the first time ever he used an exclamation point in a text message to me. So I know he's fired up about something today. So buckle your seatbelt, audience. And Jim, I'll welcome you back to your show before I address the audience. Welcome back. It's, I know you had a, you had a trip to... Uh, Cooperstown we talked about before and your back settled in and a lot of a lot of pitching things going on right now in our game of baseball yeah it's Dave it's just it it reached the point with me it's so sickening and I'm I'm just wondering when is either a person or an organization going to step up and change the way they're training pitchers and and you know eliminate all the injuries and the issues I mean Jacob deGrom uh, I'm glad for he and Strasburg. You know, uh, Strasburg may never throw another pitch, and uh, and Degrom is now on the 60-day IL. He's in for 185 million. Strasburg's, I think, in his career in pitching 1,400 innings, he will have earned 250 million. Good for them. But I remember a few years ago when they shut him down, and I I kind of sent out a personal message. I was doing a piece on the MLB network about, you know, don't let them shut you down. You may never get this chance again. Fortunately for him, he did, and he was a World Series MVP. But that's really the only banner year he had. You know, it's the only inning, only year I think he pitched over 200 innings. And uh, I was thinking to myself, if I could be Benjamin Button and go back to 44 years old instead of 84, I would start a pitching school. And, uh, there would be no radar guns, no devices. Uh, I'd teach a drill that I've talked to you about, field a ground ball. I'd roll guys a ground ball. Uh, I did that for years. Hop, step, and throw to your target like it's your first baseman. Hit them in the chest. Uh, start at about 45 feet if you're a big league pitcher. If you're a kid, do it at about three-quarters of your pitching distance. Do it every day. Uh, back up a few feet each day. Uh, you don't have to do it for a long time. But what it'll do is it will you'll find your natural arm slot. Your body will adapt to that because you can't take a young pitcher who throws three quarters and all of a sudden think you're going to turn him into a dead overhand pitcher. You know, his body may not react that way. So you find your arm slot. It also... The, the bonus is uh, you strengthen your legs by doing that because you're using your legs the same way you're using them when you pitch. And, and also you find a repeatable motion. I, I think I mentioned to you in our last podcast that uh, I played with a golfer who's really, uh, he's an up and coming young golfer. He's going to Q school to try to get his PGA card. And he's really into the, you know, the, the data, so to speak, on putting to be able to find a repeatable putting stroke. And Tiger Woods, if you showed his putting stroke without knowing it was him to several teachers, they might say, no, nah, I wouldn't teach that. But Tiger's repeatability 
was 97.5%, which is far and away better than anybody else. And what that tells you is, even if your motion isn't perfect, uh, if you can repeat it, you can make putts or you can throw strikes. And today it seems like, you know, they're not really hiring teachers and coaches or hiring robots. All they want to do is show me the numbers. And as a result, uh, I think a lot of guys are throwing with a motion. I think you mentioned uh, a, a fellow that you knew with the, that knew a lot about the mechanics of the motion that uh, we're trying to get pitchers to throw with a motion that's not really maybe conducive to their body. And the injuries are piling up every year. Not only the injuries, but, you know, it's kind of personal with me because I'm a big Joe Ryan fan. I, I predicted two years ago Joe was going to be a star, and he is. The other day he's got uh, six and two-thirds innings. He's given up two hits and one walk. They take him out of the game. And the game, the bullpen doesn't hold it, and uh, they lose. He gets the loss because he had a man on base. And I'm thinking, when is somebody going to train these strong pitchers to pitch deep into games, to pitch the third time through the batting order, and quit turning it over to the bullpen guys with no disrespect to them, but they're not your all your high-leverage relievers that you like to use in the eighth and ninth inning. And, and that's where they're not spending the money, and that's where the games are won or lost. So uh, that part just... Uh, you know, it's uh, MLB teams, I think, are creating a, a, an atmosphere where a lot of pitchers are ruined before they ever get started. It goes all the way back to their teenage years where this emphasis on throw as hard as you can and we'll teach you the other stuff, and it's not working. So where is somebody going to step up and, and kind of remedy this? I don't know. I think we'll do that right here. I think so you, <laughs> you used a phrase, and I want you to kind of elaborate. And I used a phrase: "There's a dumbing down of starting pitching." Speak yeah, that. Well, part part of the dumbing down is the pitch count. You know, you've got pitchers that are capable of. I would say, in an average nine inning game, we didn't really see the pitch counts until the day after the the press box. The radio announcers would keep track of them, just as a matter of. What they did, you know, they like to keep keep a detailed uh, scorecard. So you'd find out the next day. I think I think I had a couple of games uh, later in my career when I didn't walk many, didn't strike out many. I think I threw as few as seventy five pitches, and I'm sure I had some where I threw one hundred and fifty. Uh, but I was trained to throw one hundred and fifty or more if necessary. And I think now when they stop them at a hundred, they think they're saving their arms. Well. They're only using their legs for 100 pitches. So their legs are, in my mind, never uh, – I've always used the expression, if you have a horse that could win the Kentucky Derby, that's a mile and a quarter, and you only run him three-quarters of a mile time after time, he's never going to win the Kentucky Derby because you haven't trained him to do that. So that's one of the dumbing down. The other thing is this, I think, myth – of the third time through the batting order. They have, again, the numbers. Well, you know, the third time through the batting order, the average against this guy is 400. Okay, what part of the lineup did he face that third time through? Did he face the three, four, five hitters, which are probably your best hitters? 
and he gave up two hits. He faced just three or four guys. So you say, oh, they hit 500 against him. Well, what if he faced the seven, eight, nine guy the third time through the order, and they're not that good of hitters, and he gets them all out? Well, then you're saying, well, yeah, the batting average against them the third time through is zero. But beyond that, if you let that same pitcher pitch the entire lineup the third time through the batting order, maybe they'll get a couple hits, but the averages aren't going to show that they're as high. You know, the famous example was when they took uh, Blake Snell out of the out of the uh, World Series game when he was about to face Mookie Betts for the third time. I mean, the guy was pitching like Sandy Koufax. And that that's another example of the dumbing down. And then I think the fact that the weight training program should really be examined. There, there has to be something wrong. When you see these great pitchers, DeGrom, Strasburg, I, I'm sure we could name a lot more that all of a sudden aren't pitching anymore because, uh, because they're injured. And they have all these specific weight training programs. And to me, uh, I was fortunate to pitch for 25 seasons. The, the one injury I had, I had pitched uh, 580 innings over a two-year period of time, and in one month I pitched 65. So I, looking back, I think, yes, I probably pitched a few too many innings there. Maybe I could have used an extra day uh, between starts here and there, but we didn't look at things that way. I can see the, the value in that, but they're just not – they don't have throwing programs where guys are developing a repeatable delivery. Uh, you see pitchers fall off the mound, throwing as hard as they can. Uh, the Colorado pitcher, I think, is still on the IL. We got hit in the head and, and, and was a, had a skull fracture. And they're in no position to feel the ball after they let it go because they've unleashed with a delivery that uh, is, is far more they're putting – what I call it ends up being powerless effort instead of a motion like Mariano Rivera, who was effortless power. You know, he threw with that nice fluid motion. The ball came out of his hand, and it was very effective. So it's a combination of all those things that I think is poor training. Uh, they're not hiring coaches that are teachers or, or coaches. I was going over some of the rosters, and I think, like, my friend Carl Willis, who coaches the Indians for Tito, I would say Tito and Carl, maybe Buck Showalter, there's only a couple guys like that that I can actually talk baseball to anymore. And I put a lot of time in the game, but but I'm a stranger. They don't want to hear what I have to say. They don't even want to talk to me. And it doesn't bother me ego-wise, but I think they're really losing out on, uh, on a lot of what, could be valuable to them from what we learned, not necessarily through our successes, but what we learned through our failures and not to do it anymore. Uh, I have a, a somewhat of a new neighbor, Rick Porcello. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I always wondered, I didn't see Rick's name pop up. He's only 34 years old, but he just decided he had enough. So he has a nice farm here in Vermont, and uh, we're going to play some golf together. He's done a wonderful thing to the uh, – uh, local Bennington Little League, and he's uh, because he made a lot of money during his career, so he uh, wants to give back, and he's going to uh, provide a lot of financial assistance to build an indoor facility for the Little League kids here in Bennington, Vermont. But he was telling me how 
you know, I thought maybe I was just an old fossil that was way out of touch. But even these somewhat recently retired pitchers like Rick are saying, you know, they would meet with the catchers uh, for an hour and then they would come out with the heat maps and they would show us. And it's like the pitchers were the last ones, you know, to kind of have authority over how they're going to pitch hitters. And I said, yeah, when you pick up the morning paper, it never says losing scientists or losing catcher. It says losing pitcher. Yes. Well, the pitcher has to own his position. He has to be a catcher makes suggestions, but the pitcher makes the final decision. And even that he would say, if I gave up a hit on, on a pitch where they'd show me the heat map, and they'd be all over him, and and they didn't want to hear him say, well, you know, my slider or whatever it was just wasn't that good that day, uh, you know, or I faced the guy two previous times, and now I wanted to change the way I pitched to him the third time. Uh, that kind of uh, input from the guy who's in charge, which should be the pitcher, uh, he doesn't even get a chance. And uh, fortunately for him, I'm happy for him. You know, he made a lot of money, he had a good career, but you, I I can see as a starting pitcher, uh, I'd get tired of having to deal with that information. Yeah, well, it tells you age 34, he decided to become a farmer instead of staying in the major leagues. I'd- well, he loves to hunt and fish, and he's got a perfect spot there. And uh, that that's good that, uh, you know, it's not like he retired and didn't have anything to do. But the, the uh, and he was well worth the investment that the uh, that the Red Sox made him. I think six years ago, he's a Cy Young Award winner. He's got a World Series ring. You know, pitched his first game when he was nineteen. He, here's another uh, point about the dumbing down. He had one of the great ground ball rates when he came up. He had one of the most effective sinking fastballs, which they now call two seamers. We used to call them with the seam high percentage of ground ball outs and all of a sudden it's like well no that pitch doesn't work anymore we're going with the elevated fastballs we're going with the cross seamer four seamers and we want to go up in the zone well he had a bad year and he led the league in giving up home runs but you know you fall into that trap with what the organization wants you to do and all of a sudden you're losing your identity yeah uh and, and that's happening too. So all of that, I think, is it's just so sickening that uh, what they're doing to pitching. <laughs> I'm not alone. I know I hear in the in the background from the Minnesota people that Rod Carew is on the on the phone constantly about what they're doing with hitting. And oh. uh, just to switch with hitting for a moment, my friend John Stuper sent me this uh, little video of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig taking batting practice. And then I saw the movie, uh, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, the Yogi Berra story, which I hope everybody sees. It's fantastic. And when you look at Yogi and Babe and Lou, their swings, when they finished their swings, the bat was like below their number. In other words, it was such a level swing. There wasn't any visible launch angle in any of the swings. And yet Babe hit 60 home runs. (laughs) Yogi hit 28 and only struck out 12 times. So, you know, they they were able to launch the ball without uh, scientific advice telling them how to launch it. It just, you know, with their natural swing, they got it in the air often enough to hit it over the fence and to also have a high average. So, uh, you know, that's the effect that some of the modern science has on 
affecting hitting in, a, in an adverse way. Oh, it's, and I know you, you read Kevin's article. I, I, we were going back and forth where I was tagging you on the Facebook post that I wrote about analytics and, and Kevin used some of it and quotes from me in his article recently where the biggest misnomer with analytics is they claim that analytics is an objective view on a game and it's really not. The analytics are just as fallible as the individual who created the formula. So the analytics have bias. And some of the problems like, like you're talking about where they use analytics now with these opaque formulas, sometimes they're hidden. Um, but when they're questioned, they use them as reason to push people out. And that makes them very dangerous. They could be a very useful tool. However, the way they're being used right now, and as you're, you're, you're pointing out, the way pitchers are not just being unproductive, but they're getting injured. The way hitters are, I mean, just I can't watch the hitters either. I'm glad Rod Carew, he's got a much bigger name than I do. <laughs> he's banging on. And when he goes to spring training, they, he shakes hands like I do, but they don't listen to You know, they have no time. Here they had Tony Oliva and Rod Carew around the batting cages and, and Paul Molitor, another great hitter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, their, their advice, they don't even uh, ask him for advice, really. But uh, That group right there, those are – those are three of the most unique hitters in baseball because you have one in Molitor who was, you know, people talk about movement at the plate and he was a standstill guy. He had still feet, still hands, and he kind of just snapped that. You're like a rattlesnake. Carew was the master of, I mean, he had the bat flat sometimes. He just changing his stance, his hands, his posture. Antonio Oliva could have been, he's complicated simplicity. He was, I see it, I hit it. I see it, I hit it. And uh, I mean, what, you, the twins couldn't ask for better with that. No, they had all three of them. And of course, now one of the look-alike uh, Rod Carews is uh, hitting about 400. Louis Rice went five for five the other day. And uh, he's just like Rodney. Rodney moved around in the box all the time, pitcher to pitcher, pitch to pitch. And his exit velocity was, I don't know, 80 miles an hour maybe. He didn't care. But, uh, yeah, those. it's unfortunate to see. Uh, you know, as, as good as the game should be, and I think everybody's very positive now about the, the pitch clock, other than Alex Manoa. You, you probably read a little bit about his story, the Toronto pitcher. I did. Uh, yeah, he's having he's having a great deal of difficulty adjusting to having to work that quickly. He got knocked out in the first inning yesterday. He's 1-7. He was a Cy Young Award candidate. I think I don't. I don't know if he won it, but he was a candidate last year. And he just can't adjust to that, uh, you know, uh, not having quite as much time between pitches. So, But but for the most part, I think uh, everybody's happy with it. I think uh, the pitchers uh, are, are working at a, a nice pace where, uh, and the reason I worked uh, quickly, I just found out about that by kind of by accident. Actually, it was from Brooks Robinson that said, well, you don't give me enough time to really start my action as a hitter. So by working at a fast pace, uh, it does not give the hitter as much time to get comfortable. You can kind of keep him off balance uh, and more guys should do it. And and that's the good point that, uh, you know, that pitchers are kind of forced to do it now. I hated it. I hated it. I couldn't stand facing pitchers that were right back on the rubber before I got yeah. back. It was not just physical, but it was a, uh... It was a mental, it was a gamesmanship thing. When you're there in any type of situation, whether you're playing football, basketball, when you see the you know the defense ready and set, that's intimidating. In some yeah. 
So I agree with Brooks Robinson. I'll sit on his side. <laughs> yeah, you know, he said when 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 the pitcher started his motion, he started his like the bat would go back, so his yeah. number would be facing the hitter. The that's why hitters back in those days did not get on, hit on the hands much, like Machado, who's dismissed a lot of time. Because now, with the increased velocity, the hitters are starting so quickly to get the bat out front that their hands are exposed. And then if that fastball runs in on their hands, I mean, I think it started years ago when Jeff Bagwell had that injury. And, and I think Derek Jeter uh, missed a little time with it. Hitters years ago never really got hit on the hands as much as they did in the back of the shoulder. Yeah, two, two guys dive that, that whole diving in as well. Both those guys, that, that yeah. diving in trend started back then too. And now it's prevalent. It's it's And and, uh, and back to the uh, the dumbing down of the pitching yeah. and yeah, I don't couldn't use the word dumbing down as much as I would just use it's uh, it's it's flagrant. <laughs> I'll, I'll come up with flagrant or stupid or one of those, but they are forcing kids to throw harder at a young age than their body will allow, and they're capable of throwing. And the injuries may not manifest until a few years down the road. And I use myself as an example. Uh, I was five ten and a half when I graduated from high school. Uh, my record was good. I didn't throw very hard. Uh, I pitched. And uh, then I got signed. And my first year, I went to like 6'3", about 180. But I was gangly. And uh, I've always used like the big Great Dane Marmaduke, Marmaduke you know, all, all over the place. So... I pitched my first year in uh, Class D ball, and my record was five and six. I had a few good games and a lot of bad games. And on the bus ride home after the last game, the manager said to me, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. So the next year I went to 6'4", 225, and I did have a good fastball. But think about that today. If you went to a tryout camp, as a 17 or an 18 year old and you didn't throw in the nineties, they send you home the first day. Oh, absolutely. And, and maybe everybody's body is different. Maybe that particular kid that didn't impress you as an 18 year old suddenly grew and didn't abuse his arm. I never pitched organized baseball till I, I think I was 14 American Legion ball. No, no little league. I pitched, uh, Softball was a big sport then, underhead. We played our baseball amongst ourselves, four-on-four, three-on-three in our neighborhood, depending on how many guys we could get. So we never really abused our arms, never had travel ball, never had to go to any schools, things like that. Uh, And so, you know, a combination of those things has really been detrimental to, uh, to the development of a lot of potentially good young pitchers. Yeah. Well, here's a, here's a logical question, probably for you and I. But so the, the flagrancy of this, uh, I guess the the way they're developing pitchers or the dumbing down. Let's just okay. Say we give them that. We're not going to change that. Why don't we have more quality relievers then? If they're gonna if they're gonna tell starting pitchers that okay, four and a third is what we're going to go. Would it not be logical to start developing stronger relieving course? You know that the the first the first experience I saw with that was when I was doing the College World Series. Uh, 
back in the 80s, and Wichita State had a pitcher named Darren Dreifert. He went on to be a top draft pick of the Dodgers. And he could hit, too. And, in fact, he would have, he would have been kind of the Shoei Otani of that era. You know, he was a good good hitter. There are others like that. John Olerud, Paul O'Neill probably could have done it. Not as good as Otani by any means. He's a, he's special. But uh, I said to Gene Stevenson, Dreyfurt's your, you know, like your best pitcher. He's not starting today. He said, no, I wait, and I'll probably bring him in, depending on the score of the game and stuff, I'll bring him in in the fourth inning, and then he goes on from there. So, yeah, that's where, you know, that's where you need to you know, you still want a quality rotation. The Twins have put together a really good quality rotation of uh, young guys and veterans. They've got uh, Bailey Ober, who has really come on and, and pitched well. Now they got Joe Ryan. They got Pablo Lopez, who is still uh, young. He's had a few rough starts. Sonny Gray, and then they have a, a fifth pitcher, Varland. But, you know, they never see the eighth inning. And they have a, a reliever named Gavin Jacks. He's got a great fastball. Well, the other day, I think over a period, over two appearances, he threw 29 pitches. 27 of them were sliders. Slider, 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 one right after the other. Well, doing that, first of all, you're going to lose your fastball because it's the, oh, if you don't use it, you lose it. And throwing that many sliders is only going to take its only going to take its toll on your elbow or your forearm. You know, if you throw 10 consecutive sliders, hard sliders, I'm not talking about The sweeper now is an old pitch. That was half curveball, half slider. We used to call it a slurve. But if you throw 10 sliders in a row, pretty good chance at least three of the 10 are going to be what we call Schmidt mixtures. They're just going to rotate like a Frisbee. And those are the ones that end up over the fence more than any other pitch. So, you know, that part of pitching is gone uh, because those those middle relievers are not like they have this Duran, the closer, who throws, I, I think, as hard as anybody in the game. But back to what you were saying, I remember telling Brian Cashman when I was still doing Yankee games years ago and the game began to get a little more specialized, I said, why don't you take your money and go out and find three or four of the best closers you can find and give them all closers money, give them big contracts. Uh, and, and then you can kind of, you can kind of work out a schedule where you don't overuse each one, but you got four bona fide closers coming out of the bullpen. Uh, you remember when Houston at Octavio Dotel, Brad Lidge and Billy Wagner. Yeah. That was the start where you, and then, of course, Mariano, when he was a setup guy, those are the types of pitchers that could lock down the game when you had a one-run lead. And, and uh, was it Moe and, Mo and Wetland, right? The last three, they'd come in. Yeah, Wetland would be, but, but Moe, you know, when he came up, was sixth, seventh, uh, seventh, eighth inning, and the game was over after six for the most part. Uh, but we don't have those kinds of combinations anymore. We don't have the the setup so-called relievers to to bridge the gap from the starter to the closer. And I follow those box scores every day, and that seems to be where the games are lost, uh, unless you have a team that can just uh, outscore them. Like Texas now, they're really putting some runs up. And uh, Martin Perez, I think, had seven innings, gave up a run or so, took them out, boom, and they, they score a lot of runs. They end up winning. But 
meanwhile, he's pitched seven innings and uh, he's got a no decision. So now he's done for four days. So you're not really getting top value out of your starters as, as much as you should either. What would Johnny Sane say with a guy throwing 27 sliders out of 29 pitches? Well, I don't think he would. I don't think in Johnny Sane or any anybody in their right mind would advocate would advocate that. You know, you uh, uh, it, it still goes back to all the great pitching coaches that I had, and, and we've talked about that repeatedly. It's command of the fastball, yeah, and then you work your breaking pitch in, but. I used to, uh, on my bad starts, and certainly I had plenty of them, I would look the next day at the chart, and invariably I would end up falling in love with a breaking ball because I didn't have good command of my fastball. And so you end up throwing a higher percentage of breaking balls than you should, and then Johnny finally got through to me that, you know, you, you just have to keep working I believe I mentioned this before when he asked me in spring training, our first spring, he said, uh, how many pitches do you have? I said, well, I really have two and a partial. I said, I have a fastball and a curve and not a really good changeup. So he said, well, what pitch should you work on then? Well, the logical answer for me right away was, well, I better work on getting a better changeup. He said, no, you spend if you throw your fastball 80% of the time and you spend 80% of your time throwing the fastball so that you can own it. That's right. So when you go out to the mound tomorrow, you have complete confidence that you can throw that fastball to all four quadrants of the strike zone. Doesn't mean you're going to throw it right on the dot every pitch. You know, when you're, you hear these, you know, half inch outside that when you throw a ball, from 60 feet, six inches at a 17 inch target and you're a human being, you're not going to hit that spot all the time. Uh, You hope that you can hit those areas uh, that are the pitcher's areas. You hope that you can hit those a high percentage of the time. Uh, But that's, so that's really what I I worked on. And I finally convinced myself that even late in the game, uh, when they'd say, well, this guy's a fastball hitter, well, yeah, he is a fastball hitter, but is he a good, well-located fastball hitter? Uh, and, and that's the difference. Uh, Manny Ramirez was a great breaking ball hitter. But if you're Burt Blylevin or anybody that's got a great curveball, and you locate your curveball, he, he isn't as good a breaking ball hitter on that as he is on just the average breaking ball. Yeah. Well, that I- makes sense. Yeah, that was well. The advice that you gave Johnny saying own your fastball that was the that was the three words I was looking for. I remember you saying that um, before, and we we just got done with our. I mentioned to you we have the baseball group, which our friends from New Zealand are coming down in July to take part in a big recruiting event with USA Baseball and MLB Baseball and all the college coaches. And we we had our first practice today, our first spring training session, we called it. And I take your advice: Memorial Day to Labor Day is when we play baseball. And uh, yeah. our pitchers today, we, we threw we threw some bullpen sessions, and all I asked them to do was to throw strikes. I wanted to see their number one pitch, throw strikes, and we charted at how many what, what percentage of strikes they threw. T- taking some advice from you, I did not stand in there though for the brushback pitch. I do not have that. Cool <laughs> yeah. Well, you mentioned that recruiting trip. You know, I'm looking forward to that because you know uh, uh, James Matthews and his mother Meg and two of his teammates are coming over to that in. Uh, in mid-July, and then they have an open day where they're going to come to uh, Cooperstown, and I'm going to arrange a tour of the Hall of Fame for them. 
Yep. Harry Carmichael, Alex Taylor, and James Matthews all coming down from coming over from New Zealand, I should say. I'm geographically challenged, but they're uh, going to spend a week plus with us playing baseball here in Myrtle Beach and and uh, join our our USA baseball team that we have. And it's going to be a fun time for them all. And at the, you, them getting to meet you again in person is going to be a, a highlight of the trip. And I'm just jealous that I can't make my trip up there because we have another yeah, trip. I, you know, I don't know, James, you mentioned the other two teammates. I'm trying to um, – there was a teammate he had named Keegan who was an excellent left-hand hitter. I mean, we're talking about when they were 9, 10, 11 years old. Uh, so I don't, I don't, no, I don't no, recognize no. the names of the other two. Two, two good players, both catchers, uh, both both pitch as well. And so it'll be fun to have them there. And uh, James plays shortstop as well. So that's what I'm looking forward yeah, to running. Right. Well, you know, back, to your, back to your pitching drill with your pitchers in spring training. Still, you know, one of the best drills. Uh, and you could start kids out with at a young age. And I did it when I coached for Pete Rose of big league pitchers is uh, – you know, you, you have your pitcher uh, warmed up almost like he's going in a game and then just throw 10 fastballs anywhere in the strike zone. Yeah. And then when he gets really good at throwing maybe 8 out of 10, uh, Tom Browning, I think, could probably throw 10 out of 10, and he never hit 90 miles an hour, and he pitched a perfect game. When you can do that, then you cut the plate in half, and then you cut it in quarters, but you do it all with a fastball. And then when you get command of that, you know, you gradually work in your, your breaking ball. But if you could command that, you can get by with uh, a, a less than gold standard breaking ball if you have excellent command of your fastball. Yeah, we did that today. We didn't cut the play in half. We had the full 17 inches and we were yeah. right around 14 to 16, everybody with their fastballs. We have seven, seven of our 10 guys pitch. Um, so. I was happy with that, and I told him Thursday we'll we'll do uh, tomorrow. We're working on uh, we're working on holding runners uh, a little bit more and controlling the running game from the mound, and then we'll get back to bullpens on Thursday with them. We start off practice gym with PFP though, PFP and base running. Good, good. There's not enough of it. You know, I think I, another thing with I, you know, with the the fact that those of us that played are kind of forgotten about or don't have time. Is I did go to the spring training with the Phillies. Several years ago, my friend Pete McCannon was the manage, manager, and Bob McClure was a neighbor of mine. He was a pitching coach, and so Mac was busy with you know with uh, setting up schedules for the big league pitchers, and my job was go over uh, you know with the with the AAA pitching coach and uh, work on some fielding. Well, they went through drills for about five minutes, and they said, "Well, that's it. We got to go over here now and do this and do that." I'm scratching my head, thinking, "Really? That's all the time you do?" I mean. That PFP in spring training, that was the first couple of weeks, that was a major drill that we did time after time every every day. Yep. You know, you start out uh, running that path where you, you know, you run toward a spot in the foul line about 10, 15 feet short of first base and angle up the line. And then you'd practice uh, the throws to second base for a bunt. And then they'd bunt over to the third base line and you'd go over that. I mean, it was... Uh, it was a good hour's workout, and, and I like to even do it in my in my spare time. I mean, my other time, I just love to have a coach uh, hit me some fungos left, right, wherever. And, uh, you know, fielding for a pitcher doesn't take a lot of skill. Uh, it takes a lot of practice, and it takes a lot of anticipation. Uh, that when, the, when you deliver the ball, 
you have to anticipate that might be hit back at me. And I was a left-hand pitcher that fastball moved down and away from right-hand hitters if I threw it properly. So there were a lot of balls that were hit in that middle third of the diamond. And so I wanted to be ready to, you know, to field as many of those as I possibly could. Well, it makes sense. I mean, once you release the ball, you're now one of the one of the fielders out there. And that's what we teach all the infielders and outfielders. Anticipate the ball is going to come to you every time and, you know, be ready for it. That way you're not surprised. Now, we were talking a little bit of the baseball moving around the diamond. Getting back to your, your twins, Carlos Correa. Yep. They gave him a ton of money. Um, you know, not, not what he was looking for. You know, he wanted more and he didn't get it, but um, got a nice pillow contract, I guess they call it. And but they've got a young man in, in the wings uh, with, was it Royce Lewis? Yeah. And he, uh, boy, he took another fall yesterday. I'll have to check the lineup tonight and see if he's in there. They had a day off, but he, he tripped right in down to first base, but he, he's been off to a really good start. And I think uh, what was behind the Correa signing was that uh, Royce had suffered, you know, he had two knee surgeries. So they didn't know exactly when he was be, would be ready. And I, I think maybe in retrospect, they could have got somebody that was just, say, a good glove man at shortstop uh, to fill the gap till he was ready, and then he'd be a shortstop. But they did. Uh, you know, the Correa thing was kind of puzzling to me because he was with Minnesota last year. And then the Padres, I think, had him. Was it the Padres or the Giants that had uh, a contract on the table? The Giants. Giants. And uh, he failed the physical because of that surgery on his ankle. Well, then he went to the Mets, and the same thing happened. So now he goes back to the Twins, which if he really wanted to stay with the Twins, you would think that that's where he would have signed a contract. And, of course, he came back there and said, well, this is where I always wanted to be. I love it here. And they, you know, they're making kind of a clubhouse leader out of him, and uh, or he is out of himself, one or the other. But uh, now he has played in 50 of the 60 games. He's missed the last three with plantar fasciitis, which many think might be tied into the ankle surgery that he had. Uh, so they, you know, I think he's only had one year where he's really played a lot of games. And I don't know whether teams look at that or not, but I always go back to Andy McPhail, who was the GM of the, of the Twins for years, and Terry Ryan was their great scouting director. And I mean, it was a real baseball organization. And Andy said, I, I only I only want to give a long-term contract to a player that I feel is a surefire Hall of Famer. And so he gave one to Kirby Puckett, I think five years. Ken Herbeck got a, a deal because Herbie was an institution, still is, took a hometown discount instead of going to Detroit. But now they're giving out these long-term contracts to guys that really – are not what you'd call surefire Hall of Famers. They're they're good players, but uh, good for the players. They're taking advantage of it. When I mean, in your time in the broadcast booth, I know you had you had access to, you know, front office managers, uh, coaches. When they sign guys to those type of deals, those 10, 12 years deals, and it takes them into their late thirties, sometimes forties, um, and God bless them for getting that kind of money and that kind of duration. Have you ever asked or gotten anything back on what the thought process in? Are they? I mean, are they hoping just to get a good five, and then if anything else happens, it's bonus? I mean, what's what's the rationale behind that? Uh, the only thing I can, one of the things I guess, is that by averaging it out, 
it keeps them under that luxury tax limit uh, is one of the things. So, uh, but but I, I don't know what the rationale is other than that uh, there's a lot of money out there. I mean, now you see franchises going for $2 billion, uh, whereas uh, I think I told you before when a friend of mine in Minnesota looked like maybe my career was over and he said, I have a, a chance to buy the Texas Rangers for $7 million. Would you want to come be part of the baseball operation? And I, I said, Dick, surprising as it might sound, I plan on continuing to play as long as I can. But that was the value of the franchise then. And so uh, with streaming and merchandise, uh, there's got to be a reason why they're doing it because they don't want to just give money away for nothing. Sure. They are making some pretty bad decisions with these long-term contracts they uh, they give guys. Unless, like in Washington's case with Strasburg, I think if they can say he is completely disabled and can't pitch anymore, uh, there is some insurance value there, I think, from what the Orioles did with Albert Bell. When, uh, when he had the hip injury, he couldn't play anymore, and they had to continue to pay him, I think, $8 million for another five years, uh, I believe they got some insurance uh, benefit from that. I'm sure not full value. It seems from, at least from an outside view, just as, just as foolish as the way they're training pitchers, as we talked about and how they're training hitters. It seems like it's just, at least they're consistent. I guess we can say that about uh, the, uh, the foolishness and the, maybe some of the thoughtlessness that's, that's yeah, going on. I mean, what, what's so disappointing is that, uh, uh, there is a lot of valuable knowledge that guys have play, who have played. I learned because I didn't have a pitching coach till I was in the big leagues. But you know, I got a lot of my knowledge from from guys that were. You know, I've, I've mentioned Warren Spahn. I got a pitching lesson from him when I was 22, and Robin Roberts was near the end of his career with the Orioles. But I got a chance to meet him and. Even my contemporaries, I would ask Dave McNally, who was a great left-hand pitcher with the, with the Orioles. You know, Mac had this fastball that he could throw to right-hand hitters, and they would sort of, you know, back up, you know, back their their lower half up and, and like, pull in their belly like it was going to be inside, and then it would cut across the inside corner for a strike. Mike Cuellar had that, too. And every time I tried that, it went over the left-field fence. So I said, you know, one day I said to Mac, how are you how are you getting that fastball inside and not leaving it over the plate? He said, well, all I do is my, my, my plant foot, I point my toes a little more toward the third baseline. So that opens me up just a little bit more so I can get that fastball inside. Well, those are the kinds of things that a statistic, I don't use the word analytics anymore, but on it. A statistical genius, uh, he, he's not going to understand that because he never played. You have to get that from somebody who has actually played the game. And so those are the guys that I would go to. Yeah. And we had a uh, young I say young player. He's out of the game now. Jared Costar was a guest of ours two times in a week because he got such a great response. Once with Man on Second with Joe Frazero and then with Kevin and I just yesterday on our Coach and Kernan show. And I asked Jared a question. I asked him, and I wasn't expecting this answer, but I said, what's the biggest mistake? If you could talk to young Jared Cosart, um, high draft pick of the Phillies, uh, coming up the line, what's the biggest mistake you made that you would tell you know, a younger version of you to do something different? 
And he said, I didn't ask enough questions of people. And I found that interesting because we talk about that all the time. And I, and I wanted to find out if it was intentional or design. He, I said, why didn't you? And he's like, well, first, when we come up, we're so heavily touted with all the social media and whatnot. And he goes, I was too proud to ask a question. Like I was thinking like, I'm this high level ranked player, high drafted player. I'm supposed to know it all already. And he thought asking questions came to brought about weakness. And that's, that's a problem with our young kids today. They're so fragile because of all the social media. They can't expose weaknesses. The other point he thought I made, and I want to get your opinion on both. He, he brought up a point where he felt like he couldn't trust people in the organization because the money was so high that he felt anything that he said would get brought back and used against him. And it actually did happen to him with, a, with one of the psychologists within the organization. He got brought back to him during his contract time, things he said in confidence. So um, those are two things I thought like, hmm, maybe it's not intentional. Maybe some of it's not, but what, what are your thoughts on that? What, uh, yeah. If, if I understand that right, I mean, I think it's just an example of the, of the pressure that's on young players and young people in general today. There's so much more pressure. You use the word, you know, couldn't trust him. Well, I knew uh, when Eddie Lopat told me something, I could take it to the bank, you know, because I knew Eddie pitched and I knew, I just knew from, you know, he had my best interest at heart. He wasn't trying to impress me with, you know, do it my way. And that's the only way. And uh, you mentioned the questions uh, after my 1961 season, I was nine and 17, led the league in wild pitches, hit batsmen, didn't hit them in the in the ribs, I hit a lot of them in their back foot with my curveball, and uh, <laughs> that hurts too. control was suffering a bit. But Eddie said, uh, "Kid, uh, if you don't hurt your arm, you're going to pitch for a long time." And I said, "Why do you say that?" He said, "Because you're curious." He said, "I see you. you're asking questions." I talked to Camilo Pasquale. I'd see other pitching coaches or whatever, and and he, Eddie was secure enough that. Like, uh, like I did when I coached, uh, I went over to had Tom Browning go over to Rod Paradoski, the Dodger coach, and have Fernando Valenzuela show him how he threw a screwball. So, I, I, you know, I think that's where, where you learn things is you uh, – uh, and maybe now in this digital computerized world, or world and, and the fact that we don't have as many coaches that have had big league playing experience, they're hired more for their technical knowledge. Uh, and, and they, they are valuable in terms of, they may be able to help you with your motion, but, uh, that's only part of the, that's only part of the job. You have to have some on the field experience, uh, to, to learn how to, you know, organize your stuff and handle it on game day. You can't call that coach out to the mound every other inning with a laptop and show you what you're doing wrong. You have to figure that out for yourself. And I, I think that's where we had the advantage of asking uh, asking a lot of questions because that was the way we learned. They, we didn't have coaches in the minor leagues, and uh, it was sort of trial and error. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I found it interesting. Jared is a, an interesting listen. He's very self-aware, and he put it on himself. He said, there's no reason why I should have been afraid to ask questions to people. And I, he's like, I would have lasted a lot longer if I did. And uh I give him a lot of credit for having having that uh, little bit of introspection later on in life here. But uh, so we he with the Phillies. He got drafted by the Phillies. He was with the Astros as well, and I'm drawing a blank on the two other clubs. Maybe the Rangers as well. But uh, lefty pitcher. He he's one of those athletes that you know he got he got signed when he was 18. He was you know 
scholarships at Stanford, I think was one of them. And Rice was his dream school. He talked about that recruiting process. And um, so he's a, he's a bright young man and he chose professional baseball, got drafted in the round like 31 or 32 and, but got paid second round money. He was, a, he was a ridiculous athlete. He could have played outfield as well. Um, but uh, as he says, he was a product of the, of the uh, kind of the travel regime. You know, travel ballers, they clocked you on your miles per hour from the outfield and launch oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. So he got caught up in that. And he, he's a, yeah, he's a that's too bad. Did he pitch in the big leagues? He, oh, he did. His first start he talked about too. First start was six and a third, no hit, no hit baseball. Um, and uh, so he says, and he kind of joked, he goes, and it was downhill from there, but that's not true. He, uh, he had 14 wins the second season. I think he was the most productive pitcher in the second half besides Mad Bomb in the national league. So really good start. Yeah. Real good start. And then, uh, I should have crossed paths with him. Now, how, how does he spell his last name? C O S A R T and two oh, yeah, R yeah. and Jared. Um, yeah. okay. But f- fine young pitcher and just, uh, got it, got some injuries. And he talked about the boy, very, very candid about being traded and injuries and being young and not knowing how to deal with that stuff. And the social aspect of baseball, I mean, just, two phenomenal interviews. And a lot of the stuff he said are some things that we talk about where we see these as problems with the players in the clubhouses today, because with the likes of you and Carew and Oliva uh, Molitor walking in a clubhouse, I mean, you guys should never make it out of there. Um, it should, it should be six hours from front to back. Yeah, no, no, it's, uh, uh, I, I've made kind of a pact. Uh, I, I, Love to go and say hi to uh, Joe Ryan and, and Pablo Lopez and Byron Buxton. I've come to know pretty well. Kyle Farmer, who's doing a good job for him, uh, you know, playing all the different positions. So I have some guys there that I've uh, developed some relationships. So I'll see them out on the field. But the uh, the big league clubhouse now is just uh, a strange a strange place for me to go. I should say the Twins clubhouse. I would go, you know, to see the Tribe. Uh, that's the Cleveland team now that will always be known as the tribe because the tribe is a group of like-minded people. And yep. They certainly are. So I was going to see Used to be one of my favorite hats before they changed their. Oh yeah. Loved it. So well, now kind of back to Correa and Lewis. I know you got to watch Correa a little bit. What, what do you like about his game? And, and I know you didn't get to see Lewis a lot, but you're watching him more now. What made you, what makes you think Lewis is ready? Well, I, I took I took a lot of that from listening to Paul Molitor and, and also from the organization. And then I, I met Royce and his uh, family when he first signed. And, and he's another one of those guys. If I walked into the clubhouse, he might be one of the first guys to come over because he, he gets it. You know, he's a first-class young man. And so I saw him from that. And then I, I, I kind of followed his minor league statistics. But then he got, he got hurt so early. And when you see him in spring training, it's typical of, you know, years ago when you saw a shortstop, you thought of Scooter Rizzuto or Buddy Harrelson, and now you see these shortstops and they look like linebackers. You know? So, you know, the size, the speed, uh, the personality, it's kind of like Joe Ryan. Uh, you, you know, you just, you can kind of sense that these guys have got something special. And obviously with Royce Lewis being a number one draft pick, the Twins, thought he was uh, something special as well. You know, 6'2", 200 pounds. He's, he's still just 24 years old. So there's, there's a lot of upside there. And I think the twins realistically just thought maybe, uh, 
I, I think Correa was very popular in their clubhouse, but from an actual playing standpoint, I don't know whether scouts or general managers look at this. They certainly did, did uh, should. But in Houston, he had Bregman, Altuve, uh, Springer. You know, he was in the middle of a lot of good hitters there. Uh, and so maybe, you know, he had he had a couple years there where, where he was a, an offensive force, but uh, he, he's not the kind of player that I think could be like a club carrier like Kirby Puckett. Uh, but the, the, the Twins thought very highly of him, and uh, so they gave him good for him, the $35 million. But now that Royce Lewis has come on, why they're they're having him play third base and uh, shortstop is probably what is his best position. Yeah, I, I hate when they do that to the young guys. I, I would have think with Correa. I know he's not Correa is not an old guy. What's he in his late twenties, maybe? Yeah, I think he's twenty nine, maybe. Yeah, I would have thought third base would have been a logical. But then again, now you have to refactor the money because what does a top notch third baseman make as opposed to a top notch shortstop? So. Yeah, never ends there. I think it in third base. I remember when when A Rod uh, went over to the Yankees, there was some thought: Are they going to move Derek Jeter to third base? Because A Rod may have been, you know, a better shortstop, though for consistency over a period of time. I don't think he could play it much better than Derek. He lost some range uh, later in the year, but he later in his career. Uh, and then Greg Nettles spent a lot of time uh, working with A Rod in spring training because. Uh, as you know from being an infielder, that third base, you could be like a hockey goalie. You can knock it down, pick it up, and throw them out. But at shortstop, for the most part, you have to feel it cleanly. Yeah. Yeah, third base, it's there's a lot of sharp angles with receiving it, and it's one step and a dive to the line, and you better have a strong chest and a strong arm uh, to, yeah. to knock that down. Yeah, and shortstops, you got to be – that's your athlete position. That's the one where everything's in front of you. Um, but uh, Jeter made it look easy. A-Rod made it look easy. And uh, I don't think they could go wrong either way. But Jeter was the hometown guy, and they were not going to move him to second base. They talked oh, about no. Well, you know, another thing about uh, Royce, Royce Lewis, I think Correa may have been too, but he was not just the Twins' number one pick. He was number one overall. Yeah. Oh, I remember. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I can't recall whether Carlos was the uh, the number one overall. I think he may have been. Uh and so when, you know, there aren't many of those guys that miss when they're, uh, they're the number one overall. Uh, you know, a few of them have, but those scouts have done enough of a job that they see this guy, kind of like when you looked at Ken Griffey Jr. when he was a junior in high school, you kind of knew where he was going. Yeah, those are easy to do. Well, we've kept you for almost an hour. I think great, great conversation today and great information for our audience. What did you want to leave the audience with today? Well, let me think. <laughs> I think uh, it's interesting to continue to see how this Tampa Bay team wins games. Uh, I'm excited for the teams that have been down so often. I was in the golf shop earlier this morning, and uh, our pro is from Pittsburgh. He's a Pittsburgh sports fan. And we were talking about the Orioles, uh, how they've improved. And I said, maybe we'll have a replay of the 1979 World Series, the Pirates and the Orioles. Oh, nice. I said, uh, if I call Las Vegas today, I wonder what kind of odds I'd get on that. But, yeah, it's kind of it's fun to see those teams that have been down at the bottom for so long. And uh, 
now either with their young talent, you know, they're starting to come together, particularly the Orioles. And uh, I'd sort of like to see them, you know, continue to do that and have a really good year, bring that uh, fan base back. It's uh, it's sad to see Baltimore during my playing days, they were the gold standard for the way they carried themselves as a team and the way they played. Uh, and in those early years at Camden Yards, they drew big crowds, but, you know, that's just uh, – uh, that's just fallen off so badly. So I like to see them come back. And uh, who's the player out in Arizona? Now I was thinking Arizona's tie for first. I don't know if I can name a player, a Cattell Marte. And now they have is it Corbin Carroll? Carroll, yep. He's a yeah. uh, he's interesting because he also catches. But he yeah, I, he's he's a, an exciting young player. I think, and I just I don't get a chance to. Uh, uh, I haven't seen I haven't seen him play a game, but I uh, I gather that he's a a guy worth watching. Yeah, how about that converted catcher to center field? You never see that. No, no, you see some catchers to third base, and also you see some catchers to short relievers. Yeah, Troy Percival. Yep, or or uh, first base late in their career. Yeah, uh, you know, you mentioned the Orioles. Have you wa- got a chance to watch much of them this year? Well, I, I do on the highlights. I know they have a young player, Gunnar Henderson. Oh, yeah, good good infield. And he's he's kind of it, – it's going to take some patience, but I think a guy like Brandon Hyde has that. And, of course, uh, Rutschman, uh, he, he's right there at the top. So. Oh, yeah, switch hitting. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a number, he's a middle-of-the-lineup guy, too, good, good average power. He, um, so I, and you mentioned the Orioles. I just saw this. must have been yesterday or the day before. With, with the win total that they had, and I, I apologize for not having the exact total, but it's the second fastest uh, time in the history of the Orioles that they've reached this wins total in the history of the Orioles organization. And as you said, they've been, a, you know, back in the time they were they were a storybook franchise. Yeah, they were. And that's how good this. Were, you know, they 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 experienced both sides of it. They're a team that during Cal Ripken's era actually lost their first 19 games of the season, I believe, back in the oh, early yeah. 90s. Yeah. I'm going 21, I think, and Cal, Cal Senior. Yeah, I think, too, they they made a uh, – they stole this reliever from the Twins because uh, he was not very productive with the Twins, this Cano. Yes. Uh, Xenius Cano, I, I can't pronounce his first name, but he's been practically unhittable. Yes, he was their setup guy for most of the time, and I think he's about – ready to take over the closers role. But they are, they're a team, as you mentioned, they understand the way their starters go, but they've got a pretty good back end right now, two legit closers back there. Yeah, and that's that's what you need. You need two, maybe three. So, yeah, if I were if I were wealthy enough to buy a club, uh, you know, I would, of course, I'd have no radar guns and I'd have a very limited uh, electronic department, whatever you want to call it, video uh, and then I would, uh, I would certainly try to develop and find as many good relievers as I can, because to try to all of a sudden train these pitchers to go seven, eight, or nine innings, uh, the big hurdle you're going to run into is agents. Yes, and they're just going to say, "No, you know, that's not good for my pitcher." And of course, the agents never played, but they're going to say that, and uh, so we're 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 going to have to live with the fact that. When you see Joe Ryan deal two-hit baseball for six innings, he's probably not going to be around through the seventh. Yeah. Well, th- this part, too, I've heard we've had a, a number of guests that have intimate knowledge about uh, Tampa Bay, and you, you mentioned you spoke positively about the way they keep winning. Um, their intel back on Tampa Bay is that they are doing all the things that you talk about 
in terms of developing players, and that's running the bases, you know, working on handling the baseball, um, lots of infield, lots of ground balls. They get out there and actually take pregame infield, pregame BP. They do PFP, um, and uh, they're doing all the stuff that you talk about week to week. So maybe they're listening. Yeah. You know, if I were if I were younger and was traveling around, I think that would be interesting for somebody to, you know, you sit down with uh, Kevin Cash for a while, the manager, and talk to him. Maybe some of their front office, and then, uh, as you mentioned earlier in our in our show, you go to a general manager and say, uh, "How do you justify a an eleven year contract? What's the value of that?" So, uh, you know, that would, if, if I were younger and still in that business, it's something that I would probably try to spend a lot of time on and find out about. But uh, I'm just a fan now that uh, loves to read the box scores and uh, follow some of my favorite players and teams and see how they're doing. Well, I'll tell you, you're making an impact on our audience. You know, we've got up to 18,700 now and they're very active and we have a very, I, I believe we have a very intelligent audience. And I, I think the shows that you provide them challenge that baseball intelligence every week. So at the very least, you're appreciated here once a week. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And if they've got questions or <clears throat> things that they'd like to have me talk about rather than just that I talk about from my own, you know, like today, I, I just, I had to vent about this pitching because it just makes me sick to my stomach to see how they're wasting this good young talent and ruining a lot of good young talent before it ever reaches its peak. Yeah. Well, when I saw that exclamation point in the text messages, I was not going to interject with fan questions. You had that table today. So you were, you were going all nine today. I wasn't coming out there to take you out. So, um, Always no, we, enjoyable, Dave. I appreciate it. Yeah. We'll keep those on the docket for next week and include the fan or encourage the fans to continue to send questions. And we'll get more of those uh, next week for Jim on the show. And, I only message to baseball. Stop making so many mistakes, so you're, you're ticking him off, so we can get to the fans next week. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But eighteen thousand seven hundred subscribers to date. There'll probably be more when I log back off the show and, and check it again. But keep download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We're battling those vicious analytics like baseball does. The rate and review helps. We keep providing you great content like Jim does every week here on Cots Corner. Listen to us on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Uh, if you got another streaming device, let me know. I'll certainly subscribe to it. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. As you see, once a day, I'll get back to a, a person live, and then I get back to everybody privately. Uh, hit, hit one big one. Uh, what was the end of May on analytics? That's the one I copied you on, Jim. I encourage people to look at that one and read Kevin Kernan's article on Ball 9. They kind of go together a little bit. 72 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices. We're just trying to build a better baseball IQ. And our audience came up with this. I wish I had, but they did. And they just wanted me to remind everybody, prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truths about ball because this program cots corner like all our other shows has no time for the comfortable lies that are being spread out there so we are going to hit you right between the eyes every time so jim thanks so much again always a pleasure on the show you do a great job and i always joke and i'm it's not a joke i get smarter every show so i appreciate that for me as well good okay always enjoyable dave episode 199 cots corner have a great day